0: Welcome to All About Data on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jory Heckman. Thanks for joining me this week on All About Data, a conversation with chief data officers and the people who are making data work better in government. On this episode, we have one of the winners of the State Department's first annual Data for Diplomacy Awards, Dr. Malini Patel with the Bureau of Medical Services. Dr. Patel, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And congratulations on winning this award for your service in working with data at the State Department. To get the conversation started here, tell me how your work has helped transform the Bureau of Medical Services and how it gathers data and how it puts data into action.
1: Well, I think that the COVID-19 pandemic is a prime example of how data are needed to make timely and defensible and transparent decisions on operations and policies. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic really illustrated across the department whether it's in my specific office medical services to other offices to the top leadership in the department that we really need to use data on our own personnel and in this case the health and well-being of our personnel to make important decisions on how to protect the health and well-being of our personnel at the start of the pandemic Mid March 2020, the government shut down and the department leadership needed information on who is currently ill, who was tested positive for COVID or diagnosed with COVID. And we didn't have any information to report on what impact the pandemic or, you know, in those early stages of the pandemic, what impact it was having on our personnel. In the medical services group that I work in, our primary goal is to care for our diplomatic uh, personnel who are serving overseas. And so it's primarily acting as a healthcare provider, you know, individual clinics, but we don't have a culture necessarily of producing big data for decision-making. We needed that during the COVID pandemic. And so at that stage, we collected information from our overseas health units who see patients at overseas posts and we established a system for collecting information on who was affected by COVID in the domestic workforce. And within a few days, uh, we sent our first report up to the department leadership on how many personnel were ill, how many personnel were affected with COVID, where those people were. And that helped to make important decisions on mission operations, how many people we needed in the workplace. In those early days, we weren't masking. It wasn't a directive until some months down the road. So we had to make decisions on, do we need to implement masking? Do we need to implement social distancing? And Separating people at, in their workstations. And as the pandemic evolved, we needed to understand where our COVID hotspots were to make decisions on where to send COVID vaccines. You know, early on, the COVID vaccine supply was very limited and the State Department like other institutions and um, healthcare facilities, pharmacies, were given a very small supply of the vaccine. And so we needed to prioritize where we were going to send those, that initial tranches of vaccine to the places that were the most highly impacted.
0: Okay. And let's talk more about the data management. As you mentioned, this is not an organization that has been having a data-centric culture. So from a data-gathering standpoint here, how did you make that possible?
1: As I said, we have just under 300 health units at our diplomatic posts. And so those health units care for our patients. They see patients for primary care, for well visits, for acute illnesses. And so we already have that structure of where we're seeing patients and understanding illnesses among our patients, but we didn't have the data reporting system. So at the beginning, it was a very crude system where overseas health units were calling into our task force that we established, you know, within a few days, and we were just tracking those cases on an Excel sheet. Same goes for the domestic personnel. There was an announcement, department notice sent out through, I believe it was email, email. And then we have our intranet page for the department, and we ask people to submit their information, to report their illnesses and COVID diagnoses, and we were just keeping track of those in an Excel worksheet. Then as we were collecting those data using these rudimentary tools, we were at the same time developing a more structured data reporting system and collection system. So we were able to collect structured data, reliable data that would then feed into the reporting system.
0: I feel we touched on this already a little bit, but just given that data management work that you highlighted, how did that help the department shape the distribution of COVID vaccines once they were available?
1: So as I said before, we had a very limited supply and we needed to prioritize delivery to those locations that were in the most need. So we used not only information on where we were having the most cases in the recent past or in the last few weeks, months, leading up to distribution of vaccines, we were looking at COVID rates in the general population. Now those data are reliable in some locations more so than in others. Um, So we tried to gather as much information about how COVID was impacting individual locations, be it COVID cases among our own personnel, be it COVID cases in the general population, hospitalization, death data, whatever science-driven metrics were available, informed that decision into where we were going to send those vaccines.
0: As far as that general population data, that was information gathered from, I imagine, health agencies internationally?
1: Right. So it's, it's, you know, what we've been seeing on the news for two plus years. The New York Times tracker, Johns Hopkins, all those data aggregating organizations that were pulling from individual health agencies, whether domestic or abroad.
0: Okay. I imagine to a certain degree, the tools, the data tools that we're talking about here, it's one thing to be reactive to a situation, understanding where the hotspots are. But I imagine the next step to that is being proactive, being able to have the predictive planning and decision-making capabilities that are even more essential. With that in mind, are there any tools that fit that description of being forward-looking and predictive in a kind of way?
1: Yeah. So for COVID, there are obviously some, you know, models um, from places like the University of Washington. They have limited reliability, we think, in certain locations where there might be different mitigation measures implemented. So I think they're probably better suited to understanding what might happen in the United States versus some locations abroad. But I think that a a good example of predictive power is air pollution. So air pollution is what I came to work on in the State Department and then got diverted as other, um, emergencies transpired. But, uh, I came here to work on air pollution. And for air pollution in most locations, there's a seasonal trend that we can follow, whether it's tied to weather or local practices like agricultural burning. So we understand in many places what the cycle of air pollution will be, what months will have really high air pollution, what months will be low air pollution. So in that instance, for that topic, we can put out communications to our personnel directly on here's when air pollution is expected to be bad. We want you to be prepared ahead of time. Make sure you have your room air cleaners, with new filters, make sure that you have access to timely air quality data so that you can plan out your outdoor activities. So that's a direct communication that we can provide to our personnel through emails and websites and notices that go out at individual post locations. We can also prepare our overseas post management into planning for different post operations. So for example, in New Delhi, India, we know that October through March, we're going to experience or we're going to see many days with hazardous air quality due to agricultural burning, Diwali, and just the weather patterns. And so, you know, we encourage post management to be prepared in terms of changing out filters and room air cleaners, being prepared for changes in work posture, whether it's more telework or flexible leave, shuttles from public transportation to the embassy in certain locations. So we can, based on understanding from data what the air pollution patterns are, we can help people be prepared for the worst of it so that they can take protective measures to reduce their health risks.
0: I imagine that there's any number of channels to communicate all this air quality data to members of the Foreign Service. But I understand that there's also an app to do this. So tell me a little bit more about that app and how it got started.
1: Sure. So our air pollution program here at the State Department is led by multiple groups, multiple offices, and the Bureau of Medical Services is just one piece of that. So The app was driven by another office that leads our air monitoring program, but we all worked together on making sure that the app was displaying the right data in terms of displaying the right science-based metrics and the key science-based health messaging to recommend people take action to reduce their health risks or take advantage of a great day and be outside and engage in outdoor activity, have the kids play outside. So we have about 300 diplomatic posts and over 80% of those have annual average particle levels that are above the U.S.-based health standard. So we know that it's a widespread problem, but not all of those locations with high air pollution levels have data on air quality. So we started an, an air monitoring program. Our embassy in Beijing installed the first air monitor in 2008 around the Summer Olympics. And soon after that, the other missions in China installed air monitors and then it cascaded to India. And then from there, there was a wide departmental effort to offer air monitor installation at overseas posts. And right now we have about 80 posts that have their own air monitors. Now there are a lot of air quality apps out there run by commercial entities, but they don't use the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Air Quality Index. And we have a partnership with the U.S. EPA. We obviously believe in what they're doing in terms of using and communicating the right science based metrics. And so we wanted to communicate air quality using that air quality index. And so the only way to do that was to create our own app. So currently the app displays air quality for Those 80 locations with our own air monitors, but also several other local government monitors with whom we formed partnerships. And the app displays current air quality. It also displays health messaging. So if it's good air quality and it's a great day to be outside, that's what the health messaging will say. It's a great day to be outside. Take advantage of this great day. At higher air pollution levels, for example, if it's unhealthy, the app will display a message saying, take it easy, reduce your time and intensity of outdoor activity. And then at the worst, air quality hazardous, the health messaging will say to consider moving indoors. The app also can be programmed to send a person an alert to a specific location's air quality. And also if a person falls into a sensitive group, if they're an older adult If they have children, if they have a heart or lung condition, they can set an alert to send them health messaging at a lower air quality level than for the general population. And this is all um, based on the U.S. Air Quality Index.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Malini Patel with the State Department's Bureau of Medical Services. She's a winner of one of the department's first ever Data for Diplomacy awards. We're going to take a short break, but we'll continue our conversation when we return. I'm Jory Heckman, and you're listening to All About Data on Federal News Network. Welcome back to All About Data. We're speaking with Dr. Malini Patel with the State Department's Bureau of Medical Services. She's a winner of one of the department's first ever Data for Diplomacy awards. And Dr. Patel, before the break, we were talking about this app that gives personnel overseas a better understanding of air quality where they're posted, which is called Zephyr. for the audience here if they want to download it. I'm just curious, these air monitors that you talked about, tell me how they go about being a data point here in terms of the air quality at these posts where they're stationed.
1: So we use EPA's approved technology. So these are monitors that can be used in the United States for communicating air quality information to the general public. These air monitors are also used to assess compliance with the U.S. standards as I said, this air monitoring program is a partnership with the US EPA. So we work with them in identifying monitors to install and also where to install them so that we're collecting the best available data. All of our locations measuring particles, which we consider, at least for our high air pollution locations, the main driver of poor air quality. It's also It's multiple pollutants in one, so it's a good indicator of general air quality coming from different sources. So all of these monitors measure particles on an hourly basis and report out the last hour's air quality. So it's timely information. And then, as I said, the science-based metrics that come out of that app or even the monitor itself and displayed on the U.S. EPA's website, they're all based on the best available science at what levels are we seeing an increase in health impacts.
0: Okay. Well, this sounds like a very impactful program here. To your knowledge, are there any conversations about expanding this to more than the 80 posts where these air monitors are currently stationed?
1: Yeah. So these decisions to install an air monitor are driven by the individual post locations, but we um, advise posts on whether an air monitor might produce information that would be useful to the post population, you know, our staff and personnel there, family members who are stationed overseas, and also the post management who are making operational decisions. We often have discussions with them on how useful the data might be in that location, given the sources and level of air pollution, um, whether there's data already available, whether the data by the local government or by some other institution are reliable. So we, we're always available to advise posts on um, whether we think an air monitor is warranted, but in the end, it's a post-driven decision. So yeah, any post is is welcome to install an air monitor. And on a yearly basis, there are many new additions to our air monitoring program. So the interest is always there.
0: The through line in this conversation has been, of course, how the department can take data and use it to drive analysis, drive policy decisions. But I think another element of this conversation has also been just how tricky it is to get that data in a condition where you can make those decisions. And so recognizing that, what do you see as some of the challenges around gathering data and using data to make these kinds of operational decisions?
1: I think, um, with the data awards, the inaugural season of the data awards at the State Department and an expansion of groups like the Center for Data Analytics here at the State Department, the culture for data and collecting good data, data management systems and using data for decision making. I think that's growing each day, but I think an obstacle has been having the right analytic tools to produce the right data and to report them in a timely manner. So as I mentioned, in the early days of the pandemic, we were initially for the first few days keeping track on an Excel spreadsheet and then moving to a more robust automated data collection system, a structured data collection system. And so I think the availability of those data management and collection systems is sometimes limited um, here at the State Department. And I can only really speak for my group, the Bureau of Medical Services, where the work to date largely focused on individual patient care and not necessarily collecting big data and using big data for decision making. So a limitation has been, a challenge has been to build that data culture to make sure the entire team is working towards the same goal of collecting good data And why collecting good data is important, why it's needed for decision making.
0: It's great to hear that that tone from the top is something that is helping build that data culture within the department. And I think case in point here, we've seen a lot of focus and attention around the department's enterprise data strategy. Tell me again from your perspective here how that strategy helps elevate the work that you are working on.
1: I think it it instills in leadership in each of the different offices in the department the need for these robust data collection systems, the need for expert scientists and data scientists and epidemiologists and other experts who might be using science and data And the need to build a team around data, because obviously it can't be done by one person. You need a whole team to not only collect the data, but then take that to the final decision-making point. And I think that the expansion of the data enterprise strategy and the priority that our top leadership, including the Secretary of State, has put on the need for good data has helped foster that. Or grow that culture.
0: All right. And of course, we've been talking about a number of different projects here. Looking forward, is there any goal or any target that you or your team see that is worth highlighting as part of this conversation?
1: I think that expanding the use of data in decision-making is a priority of mine. So in addition to the COVID work that I'm doing and air pollution work I'm doing, I have a goal of Trying to build an environmental health platform for our overseas post locations so that we're looking at environmental risks and hazards in a more holistic approach so that we can not only communicate to our personnel the potential hazards overseas, but also drive decision-making on policies. For example, what policies and operations do we need to implement on a larger scale to ensure that we're protecting our people against these health hazards? So I think that looking at additional environmental hazards, whether they're infectious or things that are more in the realm of air pollution climate is a big focus of mine. Looking at our overseas locations and a more holistic approach in terms of environmental and health standards is a priority of mine.
0: All right. And the reason we're having this conversation in the first place is, of course, your work being recognized by the inaugural Data in Diplomacy Awards. How do you see this award being a useful way to highlight data projects, not just what you've been working on, but what's been happening across the department when it comes to data?
1: I think it can help. Other people use data for decision-making for their areas of work, not only seeing what I've been working on and how this Bureau of Medical Services has used data, but also the awardees as a whole. We represent a diverse group in terms of the topics that we've examined and the decision-making that our work has driven. And I think understanding that diversity and the wide applicability of data and science and decision-making helps to grow that culture across the department and across the various work that goes on in the department.
0: One quick follow-up about the environmental data platform you were talking about earlier. I imagine that includes things like natural disasters and things that impact continuity of operations?
1: Yeah, and also um, understanding the cyclical nature of possible heat waves. There's also a direct communication that we can provide to our personnel in order for them to take the measures to protect their own health and well-being, but also the interplay between climate And things like water quality, food quality, and air pollution, wildfires. There's a whole interconnectivity with climate and other environmental hazards. So understanding the risk more holistically, I think, benefits not only personnel directly, but also the department as a whole from a policy standpoint.
0: One other question that came to mind here, in terms of the forums where people work on data at the department, is there a forum where you all can put your heads together or at least have a community of practice where people can learn more about the projects you're working on?
1: I think that's growing. With this inaugural data awards, the group for the Center for Data Analytics has set up a data website where people can find information on how the awardees have used data in their work. They're also holding office hours where the awardees can chat with people about data and how they've used data. So I think that will grow in the department as more people not only use data, but also are recognized for their work.
0: That was Dr. Malini Patel with the State Department's Bureau of Medical Services. She's a winner of one of the department's first-ever Data for Diplomacy Awards. You can find the full interview and transcript on federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Jory Heckman, and thanks for listening to this episode of All About Data. Thanks for listening to All About Data on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your favorite podcast app. Search for All About Data on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows.